Hey everyone, it's Rajan. So, I know all of you are aware of both the joys as well as the downfalls and perils of modern technology, and unfortunately, both of those kind of manifested themselves in this podcast with Mr. Roland Lazenby. Uh, the audio file of our conversation got corrupted about halfway through our conversation, which really, really sucks because there was some absolutely fantastic material that got lost in the process. So, I'll apologize in advance for the abrupt ending to this podcast. I hope you enjoy the parts that did get preserved, and there's a link below to Amazon.com where you can purchase Mr. Lazenby's book. I strongly, scarlingly encourage that you do so. It's an amazing book. Um, the link below is an affiliate link, so we do generate a little bit of proceeds from there, but that's going to go right back towards funding this podcast. Anyway, hope you enjoy. Make sure you buy the book and on to the podcast. Welcome to the Hail to the District podcast with your host, Rajan Nanavati. Welcome back, everyone, to the Hail to the District podcast. I'm Rajan, and I'm really excited about today's guest. With the NBA season tipping off this evening, I'm joined by highly esteemed NBA biographer Roland Lazenby, whose new book, whose new book Showboat, The Life of Kobe Bryant, has actually released today. Now, for those of you who need a little little background, Professor Lazenby, and I'll explain in a moment why I call him Professor Lazenby, is the author of the book Michael Jordan, The Life, a biography of his Aaroness himself, as well as the book Jerry West, The Life and Legend of a Basketball Icon. And Professor Lazenby is considered one of the most esteemed biographers of NBA players or of the NBA in recent memory. And for the purposes of introductions, I have to call him Professor because I feel like that's only appropriate. Um, Professor Lazenby, how are you? I'm doing great, and feel free, Roger, to call me Roland. It's, I, uh, I, you know, I actually haven't taught uh, any college courses in three or four years. So, <laughs> you, you know what, honestly, so as a background and, and to kind of fill in the gaps there, when I was back at Virginia Tech and Professor Lazenby or Roland was there um, at my alma mater, I had the privilege of taking an independent journalism study course under Professor Lazenby and hence my insistence on referring to him by said title. But whatever few stints I had in journalism, working for a couple of newspapers here and there and whatever is able to become of myself, um, I attribute much of those opportunities being opened up because of the skills that I learned under a professor. So thank you so much and it's awesome to talk to you again well uh likewise it's awesome to talk to you and i i'm very appreciative of your generous comments but i think we should note for your listeners that they are generous Um, along those lines, I'm actually really excited to talk to you about the new book, the Kobe Bryant book, the Showboat book, um, and then maybe a little bit about this season and this NBA season in general, kind of your thoughts. But, um, you know, one of the things I was kind of looking at the book and taking a look and trying to, you know, hype myself up to get to read it and make my show, make sure I get my copy as soon as possible. And one of the interesting things I read as a, a note on the book is kind of the story of Kobe Bryant as a child saying that I'm going to become the next Michael Jordan. And I feel like there's a lot of kids, you know, growing up in whatever walk of life saying, I'm going to be the next Michael Jordan. So from your following Kobe Bryant for so long and and getting to know him, getting to know the people around him, really in your opinion, what was it that made Kobe Bryant the person who came so close and maybe the closest version we've ever had to doing so, to becoming the next Michael Jordan, so to speak? Well, uh, a couple of things. One, <clears throat> about the time, and Kobe was actually uh, a, a young player in high school when he began to get the idea about being the next Michael Jordan. It wasn't his original idea. Sonny Vaccaro, who had 
sort of pushed the whole um, the whole Air Jordan thing at Nike in 1991 was fired by Nike after making hundreds of millions of dollars um, in in basketball shoe and clothing revenue, perhaps billions of dollars for Nike. And Sonny Vaccaro um, also had great conflict with the NCAA. And he went to work for Adidas, and his plan was to find the next great young player and to steal him away from the NCAA and also to steal him away from Nike for Adidas. And uh, he just happened to, to run into Kobe uh, when it, when Kobe was a sophomore, and it wasn't just the basketball, it was sort of the it factor that Kobe had, the same kind of thing that Vaccaro had identified in Jordan. And so Kobe was the instrument of Sonny Vaccaro's revenge on Nike and on the NCAA. And also with uh, Vaccaro at Adidas was Peter Moore, who was the designer of Air Jordan. And so this young kid uh, was told by these two men who had created Air Jordan, played major roles in the creation of Air Jordan. Uh, Kobe and his family, um, Kobe and his father in particular, uh, were told that, you know, Kobe was the next guy. And so the seed was planted in the mind of this kid. Um, that, it wasn't like he dreamed it up himself. I mean, obviously, he had aspirations, even as a kid. He, he had tremendous ambition. But the statistical odds of Vaccaro and them finding, I mean, you know, trying to hatch that plan, so to speak, and then literally finding someone who could... Who, is, who resembled Jordan DNA so closely and finding someone of that nature, it, it's almost, the odds seem almost impossible, and, then, and yet they were able to do so. Well, Vaccaro was, had been the kingmaker in basketball for quite a while by um, 1994 when he first met Kobe Bryant. Back in 1972, you know, uh, Sonny Vaccaro for decades had had the Dapper Dan, the high school all-star game in Pittsburgh that became the go-to place for college coaches to go look at high school talent. And in 72, Kobe's father, Joe Bryan, had been the all-star, had been the uh, MVP of Sonny Vaccaro's tournament. And so Sonny hadn't seen Joe Bryant in years. And here Joe walks in in 1994 in the summer right before Sonny's set to have one of his camps, one of his elite camps, and Joe Bryant is there begging Sonny Vaccaro to take this unknown player, his son, a sophomore, into the camp, which was highly unusual. But Sonny agreed to do it, and Kobe um, sort of blew him away with uh, how he uh, played, and but his, his persona as well. Now, as far as... Uh, and, and I spent some time talking with Jordan about Kobe, and obviously the two guys have tremendous, um, tre- tremendous regard for one another. Sure. And um, 
One of the parallels I looked at, Jordan sort of rose to fame very quickly when he hit that shot as a freshman at North Carolina in 1982 that gave Dean Smith, the coach at North Carolina, his first NCAA championship. And so immediately Jordan was the the young hero. He was loved. I mean, the Tar Heel Nation was berserk with joy over winning, beating Georgetown for the 82 championship. Right. Well, we know that in this area, so. Right. Uh, you know, it is tough. And, um, and so his freshman year – um, really sort of launched his um, the the arc of his story <clears throat> and what amounted to Kobe Bryant's freshman year he too had some uh, end of game shots he shot all those air balls against Utah right I remember that series and, yeah and uh, he was 18 years old and he they they all landed they all fell as air balls. And four of them, and Sonny Vaccaro, who by then Kobe was a, an Adidas signee. Sonny Vaccaro was sort of looking after him, and he he called Kobe right after uh, the event and asked Kobe, uh, "Are you okay?" And Kobe said, "Why wouldn't I be?" And Vaccaro said, "Well, you just shot those air balls," and Kobe said, "Fuck them." Nobody <laughs> wanted this shot. And so um, here's Jordan as a freshman succeeding and becoming a hero. Here's Kobe shooting air balls. Sonny Vaccaro said, and there were several points along the way where he knew that he had chosen correctly with Kobe and uh, as Vaccaro told me, he spent hours with me for this book. Uh, he told me, um, you know, um, there's not another teenager on the planet who could have failed the Lakers as dramatically as Kobe Bryant and then survived it. And then have that sentiment in response. Yeah. Right. And Kobe and, and Jordan both had... Uh, a really strong will, probably the strongest will of any competitors. And uh, so strong, they're so intense competitively. A lot of the, the work that Phil Jackson wanted, the psychologist he hired to work with both the Lakers and the Bulls, that guy's job was to try to help Jordan and Kobe Bryant each gain a measure of compassion because they basically were lacking while, while they, they had some compassion in some areas. Uh, Phil Jackson wanted to build uh, one, the psychologists to help them build compassion <clears throat> so that it would be easier for them to play with lesser players on the court. I love the, the the description someone has used or other people have used. It's not even pathological competitiveness. It's like it's homicidal competitiveness with the with the two of them, with Jordan especially, but Kobe Bryant kind of mimicking or being very very similar to that. And it's um, I, I think that's one of the best descriptions I've ever read in terms of their just their 
insane focus or their insane devotion to. Um, right. Now, that was the one thing that um, that became clear with everyone I talked with who had dealt with all of them, extensive, both of them extensively. Um, Kobe may, may have spent a lot of time studying video of Jordan's moves. But the competitive nature is an organic thing. You can't mimic that. It is it, it, uh, it is to such a degree a function of will and drive that it's not really the part of the equation that that Kobe perhaps pilfered. By the way, I asked Jordan about it. He said, "Well, look, that's how things work." I copied a lot of players coming along. Mm -hmm. um, you know, every rock band in America copied the, the Beatles. The predecessor, Human, right. Humans are uh, mimetic. They ape one another. And But he said, Kobe, he told me this, and this became a big deal on ESPN a few years back uh, when, when he told me this. But he said, Kobe was the guy to put in the work, you know, and of course, Kobe and Michael both played for Phil Jackson and Tex Winter in the Triangle Offense, and so mm -hmm. they had and they had very similar careers. And Jordan, I sat down with him for about forty minutes in two thousand and eight, as Kobe was really coming through all the damage he had done to himself and yep. uh, reemerging on the other side with Pal Gasol as a teammate. And Jordan obviously had tremendous regard for Kobe and his ability to do the things he did. And I think Jordan was fascinated by it during the playoffs that year. I told Kobe I'd been talking with Michael and Kobe, he was putting on his shoes, I think in the locker room and he, his ears, he just perked up like a little kid. He said, Michael was talking about me. And so, you know, I've always found it humorous, but those guys have a mutual admiration society of two. It's really interesting because the 2003 All-Star Game, uh, Jordan's last All-Star Game, was kind of the proverbial uh, passing of the torch. And a lot of people kind of point to that. You know, Kobe had scaled the mountaintop really for the first time, you know, on the way, I think, to their, the Lakers' third title. And Jordan was obviously, you know, finishing off his career with the Wizards. And they always viewed that was the one, I think, that Jordan hit the game-winning shot Um in that all-star game. I think he won MVP if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, but I think people absolutely eviscerated him, uh, during the game. Yes. Los between the two that, yeah. and, and that was kind of a microcosm. It was like the two of them were going at each other. And I remember reading they were Jordan, Jordan joked to Kobe he goes, don't go easy on me. Cause I'm older. And Kobe was like, you think I'm going to go easy on you at all in any capacity? And, you know, they kind of had that rivalry going or not rivalry, but that, you know, that last competitive draw with each other. But I've always been curious as to what the dynamic was between the two of them. So it's really interesting to hear that Jordan has a um, almost an appreciative viewpoint of Kobe, that this guy was someone who was almost worthy enough to ascend to that, you know, copy him. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, when Kobe was in 99, I, I was after Michael had or was planning to leave the game, um, Kobe had had some questions for him, and I was going to be uh, talking with Michael at his golf tournament then, which at the time was down in North Carolina. And I visited with Michael, and Kobe wanted specifically, uh, and, and it was a funny thing, but he wanted Michael to teach him about math, uh, which was a reference, his way of, 
of saying, I want him to, to teach me how to be a volume scorer. And uh, when I told Michael that, he laughed. He said, I can teach him that. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, Kobe spent a lot of, studied more tape probably than, uh, than a lot of people and maybe more than anyone else. And uh, obviously he, he found a lot of that answer by studying Jordan's approach. So one of the things I've been fascinated about, and you alluded to it a little bit earlier, was you know you had the first three. You had I almost viewed Kobe's career, and if you want to call them three different acts or three and a half, whatever have you. You have the first one and a half, one one and a half acts with his ascent to superstardom, the the draft, you know, getting traded from from the Hornets or before he even stepped foot in Charlotte, really to the Lakers, his ascent, and then part of the three peat with Shaq. And then you have kind of the first dismantling of the Lakers as like the next actor that and those next three years, 2004 to 2006, the the failed super team with with the mailman and GP and then, you know, Phil kind of, you know, airing out some of the Kobe coach killer type of, you know, messaging in his book right after those seasons. And then and then it all kind of culminated with the, you know, the, the assault allegations in Colorado how do you think from your perspective and having been seen that entire arc of his career, you know, through today, how do we think history is going to look back on that? And what do we really think that did to Kobe Bryant's career? Just those three years. I call it. The well, well I write era. in the book. I, I write about this a lot in the book and Kobe uh, did himself tremendous personal damage with the whole series of things, with the whole way he, uh, uh, approached everything and and for people on the Lakers staff to watch him it was really painful to watch this talented guy do so much harm to himself and harm to his reputation harm to the team and you know there's a lot of detail uh, about those difficulties yeah. and one of the amazing things about the Kobe Bryant story is that he did uh, he created all of this damage and yet again back to the whole thing of will he had the will to recover from it and he had the good fortune, of course, for uh, the Lakers to to get the gift of Pal Gasol at a trade. But um, he, you know, he he sort of was in the wilderness and pretty much lost in a lot of ways. Phil came back to the team, okay. but Kobe, the the book points out, it wasn't just getting rid of his coaches. And and Shaq, Kobe was getting rid of everyone in his life. Hmm. He, he he threw his family out of his life uh, right before the 2001 playoffs. It literally just ejected them from his presence. And uh, it, it's a very bitter, untold part of his story and uh, a very harsh uh, uh, just a very harsh thing. I think a lot of people don't realize the impact. You know, we see these athletes as performers and almost, you know, it, we don't realize how much the effect of everything off the court. I mean, it's just, it's not only your finances and all of that, but your family and your, in, and all the other people in your life, how much they can really influence who you are 
both in the workplace and as well as in, in this profession, you know, on the court. And it's natural right. because like they were a, the Bryants were considered a model family for, um, you know, how Kobe was raised and um, and they were a very close family. And and this um, he, he threw them out of his life on the eve of the 2001 playoffs and he was when when the Lakers defeated the Sixers in Philadelphia. Right. Uh, Kobe was virtually the book opens with that scene in the locker room. He was all alone. Uh, no family members, nobody from his high school championship team there. And while the team was celebrating and chanting DMX up in here, up in here, the place going crazy. I remember that. Kobe goes to a handicap stall and is over there with his head in his hands. He had sort of a collapse there. And when his mother's brother, Chubby Cox, came in, he was the only family representative there for Kobe. Kobe broke down sobbing. And uh, it, it, it really um, was the beginning in a lot of ways of his of the things that culminated in the rape charges um, and how he was um, and, and how he was viewed uh, by people. Right. No, not even his teammates knew that he had thrown his family out of his life. It was uh, something that has slowly um, people have gained some understanding of it, but it's still not something that's very well known. So getting back to the Pau Gasol component that you'd mentioned and and kind of the the resurrection from all the stuff that he went through – you know, in 2000, right around 2007 season, I think it was, it was when that the kind of the culmination where he had that trade demand out there if Jerry West didn't come back. And then there was that bit, I think something got leaked about him. The, the idea of him pushing Shaq out the door got leaked. And then he went on stupid Stephen A. Smith's show and said he wanted to get traded. And then he had to kind of rescind that after speaking with Phil. And then coincidentally, you know, Pau Gasol gets traded to the Lakers as well. So I guess my first question is how I, I think some things came out this past summer or a few months ago about how close Kobe really was to getting traded to Chicago. But was that legitimately a thing? Like, was it really close? Right. Well, Jerry, Jerry Buss loved Kobe Bryant, but it had uh, come to the end of the road. If, and if Kobe was going to demand that trade, then Jerry Buss, who is – People don't realize what a tough figure Jerry Buss was, but uh, he was going to, um, uh, you know, accommodate his request if if Kobe insisted on. It. But Kobe wised up and backed out of that. But it was a, um, it you know, it was a, a big part of um, his um, his eventually wising up and. Um, resolving a lot of the damage he had done to himself and to the team. And kind of the acquisition of Pau Gasol. And one of the things I've read and, and, you know, kind of pieced together and just in my understanding of the history was that Pau Gasol was one of the few people that he respected both on and off the court. And he almost viewed him not only as like, maybe not so much as a basketball peer, but like an intellectual peer, which I thought was really interesting. Like he viewed Pau Gasol as like really cultured and really intelligent and, and just a really interesting person, someone whom 
you know, dare I say it was kind of almost on his level in Kobe Bryant's perception. Well, Co- I, maybe, but Kobe's such an aloof figure, yeah. such a cold person that that may have served the purposes of his image, but uh, by and large, he's just a very cold guy. As as any number of people told me uh, as I did this book, um, Kobe, uh, you know, is, is an amazing asshole. <laughs> but I, and and I think the the thing that uh, I, I did a book before I did the the biography of Jordan. I did a book in 1998 called Blood on the Horns, and basically I did it with Tex Winter. Right, because I remember you Tex, talking about that. Yeah, Tex explained the whole breakup of the Bulls at, at the end of the 1998 season. God, I and this him. was following the Bulls in '98. I, I, I was with them every, just about everywhere that year. And Jeff Van Gundy read that book and uh, bought it for all his. He was coaching the Knicks then. Yep. And and he bought it for all of his Knicks players because he wanted them to understand that Jordan was perfectly fine with being an asshole that to, um, to really get everything you need out of your team, you have to be very willing to piss off the people around you. And that, that was one of the benefits of not having any compassion, I guess you could say. Kobe didn't have a lot of compassion. I, you know, he, Sometimes people would project onto him certain feelings, mm-hmm. uh, and he may have had some some feelings for for Pal. Um, I, I I just am very cautious in, in of, saying that very much because Kobe is a tough customer. I was going to say corroborating that storyline is much more about it seems much more as you said, to kind of fit a narrative versus actually being the narrative. Yeah, and, and he might well be um, touchy-feely on some things. Uh, that's not the Kobe I got to know when he was a kid. You know, I spent an awful lot of time with him, and uh, he, um, he even I was shocked at, at, at just how far he could take that, that mindset. You know, that, um, that idea that he just, you know, as Mike D'Antoni told me, uh, you could walk by Kobe and he just wouldn't even acknowledge you. And it was, it could be very tough on teammates, on his coaches, uh, everyone who dealt with him. I, Kobe was all business and extremely aloof. Do you think the his competitiveness on the court and the eventual success that would kind of follow him almost helped him kind of bridge that gap with teammates or or almost kind of inspire teammates? Or do you think that aloofness kind of hurt him? And I'm trying to phrase the question directly. I think it did both. I, I, I think Kobe was a mystery. I, I think – I think it was different when he was younger and his teammates were older. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like Sonny Vaccaro said, um, uh, you know, Kobe was like the Russians. He got rid of everybody in his life. It's <laughs> a like, great metaphor. Yeah, and so... So, guys, sorry to leave you with a cliffhanger at such a great point in the interview, but that's unfortunately where the audio file co- got corrupted and no longer listenable. Um, I am so incredibly grateful that Professor Lazenby took the time to come on to the podcast, and if you've happened to have gotten this far, please show him some love by getting his book and or giving it to anyone who you think might enjoy it. Anyway, that's it for the podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and leave us some comments about what you thought about the interview. Again, thank you so much for listening, and make sure to keep an eye out for all the NBA season tip-off podcasts that we are going to be dropping this week on HailToTheDistrict.com. Thank you for listening to the Hail to the District podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts.